uh, and feel free to join us here at Clifton Park Community Church. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13, and you'll see that Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, Luke's version of it, but he puts it in a context of many other words of encouragement about prayer. So we'll look at verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you? If his son asks for a fish will instead give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. May the Lord bless the hearing, reading, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. We find here Jesus doing what he does so regularly, which is praying. It's actually one of the themes of the Gospel of Luke. About two dozen reports that Jesus was spending time praying. And some of the things that Luke reports about prayer are not found in the other Gospels. You know Luke, that meticulous doctor's mind as he goes to the history and life and ministry of Jesus. He brings it up time and time again that Jesus spent time in prayer. Not just the regular daily prayer, but sometimes extended times in prayer uh, near his baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration. Before he selected his 12 apostles, Jesus spent a night in prayer and would often go to a desolate place to focus on prayer. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, with flesh and bone and a human spirit as we have, found it necessary, vital, to live a life in obedience to God the Father to spend time in prayer. And the example of Jesus ought to awaken in us a need for us to commit to prayer. The first disciples saw Jesus praying and they were awakened and said, you know, we really need to be like our master. We need to pray like that. Oh, master, teach us about prayer. Lord, help us follow your example. They asked Jesus to teach them because as we learned in the previous chapter in verse 22, it was Jesus who would make the Father known. And Jesus who knew God the Father and who prayed to God the Father could teach disciples how to pray to God the Father. Yeah, that verse back in chapter 10, verse 22, that's pretty significant. God hides his being from some people and reveals himself to others. And he does that through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
and his Holy Spirit. So today, as we start chapter 11, we have Jesus praying, and it triggers this request, Lord, teach us to pray. So I hope that's your concern today. Lord, teach us here in Clifton Park to pray. And we'll take a look at first the the model of prayer, and then we'll take a look at the, the manner of prayer, that whole story about the neighbor at midnight. That's a hoot. Jesus probably enjoyed telling that. It makes a big point. And then we'll also look at some motivation in praying at the end. So we'll try to take in all 13 verses. And because it's a Labor Day weekend and there's no Sunday school, I can just preach right up till noon, I think. Is that, is that the permission? I, I, I got a nod, I think, from a retired pastor who's with us today. We'll see. The Spirit's the one who's leading. But no, we'll, we'll dismiss it at regular time. First, let's look at the exemplary model for praying that Jesus gives us. The exemplary model. Yes, I like big words, and here's the word today, exemplary. It means a desirable model. It means representing the best of its kind. Not just teach us a prayer. Help, that's a prayer. An exemplary prayer is the best of its kind. And the Lord's Prayer has been known to believers ever since the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 and here in Luke 11, this repeated telling of it, it is a model and an exemplary one. But notice how it begins, addressing the maker of heaven and earth as Father. In order to pray, you must know God as your Father in heaven. You must be born again, you must be a Christian. Or the prayer to become a Christian, God will hear when you address him as he is. Jesus, the Son of God, addressed God as Father directly, and that was their relationship in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And only once in all the Gospels did Jesus pray without saying Father. And that was from the cross as Jesus was carrying the sins of his people and and the Lord had forsaken him and Jesus exclaims, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sensing the distance and the judgment of God as he took our sins upon himself. Jesus knows God as Father and teaches us the same language. Because as Dr. Walter Liefeld has said, prayer is the expression of a relationship. Prayer is the expression of a relationship. It's speaking to one to whom you have some contact, some knowledge, and you're speaking to God. You don't just say, God, if you're out there, maybe as you're seeking, that's the best you can do. But for the believer, we know our God and we address him as Jesus instructs us to call him Father. Many of you know that when I pray, I always start with the salutation, Almighty God, comma, our Father in heaven. That formality is just what I grew up with, and, and I hold those things in tension. The maker of heaven and earth, the God of hosts, is our Father in heaven. Jesus starts with this because it's the key. If we are related to the Father through Jesus, this is the prayer for us. So it begs the question, are you born again? Do you know the Father through Jesus, the Son? Because that's the way you have access to this language. The Gospel of John tells us plainly in in the first chapter, about Jesus coming into the world. And in verses 12 and 13 it said, To all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Children of God through Christ's enabling. Or as the Apostle Paul would make clear when he gets to Romans 8, that wonderful passage about the Christian life and all its blessings. Romans 8.15 says to Christians, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, 
But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the Christian's privilege. And I dare say Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world. For we claim and indeed we know God personally. It's amazing. It's wonderful. But that's where the prayer starts. And that is not just a a, a one-off. Calling God Father overrules the entire prayer. It establishes the relationship and the hierarchy. He is Father. We are sons. It defines our relationship. He is the one who provides and protects. And it's his will that the children seek to obey. It's profound. If God is your father, this is the model of prayer for you. Notice what Jesus begins with after addressing God as father. His first request, the the first requests are about the Lord. Indeed, the model prayer in verses 2, 3, and 4, according to Luke, has two divisions. It speaks first about the things of God, and then it gets to the things of humanity. And I think that's very intentional, whether you're looking at Matthew's version or this version, or samples of prayers throughout the Bible, the adoration and worship of God, submission to God, desiring God's glory comes first. In Christian prayer, we must first pray, according to this model, first pray for the Lord's preeminence, for his glory. Luke gives us two specific requests Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. I'm I'm so used to saying, Thy kingdom come, having memorized the prayer in the King James, most of us from Matthew's version. We'll talk about the two versions in a minute. But Jesus teaches us, first and foremost, to address God and to pray about the things of God first. Hallowed be your name. The name representing God in all his character, his plans and desires, that it might be seen as holy. Holy in both senses, as in set apart, but also as in pure, perfectly good and beautiful. May your name, may your glory be known. May it be set apart and set forth. May it be displayed. We're not praying that God would become more holy. That's not possible. But we're praying for it to be evident in the world and in each one who prays to him. It's a request of God, but it's also a reminder to us to whom we are speaking. Father, yes, but the Holy One of Israel. It's a prayer for the glory of God to be manifest. And the second phrase in this preeminence concern, thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God is an important theme throughout the Gospels. Jesus came to preach the kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom as Messiah, the anointed king. But his first coming is different than his second coming. When Jesus comes a second time, the kingdom will be present in its fullness. He'll wear the crown and he'll bring his armies. And all the work he's doing in the world will reach its climax. For now, the kingdom is still coming, so Christians pray for that. If we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and King, we desire the kingdom to come. How do we define the kingdom? It's not geographic. It's not a political party. The kingdom of God most simply defined from the scriptures and from Christian theology is the rule of God in the world through the hearts and minds of his people. The rule of God openly acknowledged and practiced in the hearts and minds of his people in this broken world. Jesus said, upon this rock, Peter's confession of faith in Jesus I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, the church, the heart of the kingdom of God, will prevail and it will fill the earth. Nothing will stop it. It's coming. And so we ought to pray for that and remind ourselves the Lord has an agenda. He has purposes. And by praying thy kingdom come, 
We're on board with that, and we want that, and we tune our hearts to his agenda. We pray that our great and holy God might be known as holy and glorious, but that he also might reign and rule in this broken world. So when you see the headlines, when you see uh, the brokenness of our world, or when you personally experience some hardship, one of the best things you can do is to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Lord, take, take hold of me. Jesus, take the wheel. It's something like that. But ultimately, send Christ. May Jesus return and put all things right and bring about the new heavens and the new earth, the fullness of the kingdom. The model prayer starts with the things of God. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times that Matthew and Luke have two accounts of the Lord's Prayer as we know it. Matthew has a few extra phrases. They're basically the same prayer repeated in two different settings. And we should not trouble ourselves when one has an extra phrase, like Matthew has, thy will be done. It's implied here, is it not, between uh, the glory of God, the hallowing of his name, and thy kingdom come. The same prayer. Every good teacher often repeats himself on more than one occasion and sometimes varies the language slightly to make his point more clear to those who need to hear it and learn it. Two versions of the same prayer. With Matthew, it occurred in the Sermon on the Mount, which was in Galilee at a previous time. We, in, the, in Luke's Gospel, are already moving towards Jerusalem. Past the halfway point in ministry, Jesus is going to lay down his life. So two accounts of basically the same prayer. And remember, the Lord's Prayer is a model not a mantra. It is not a abracadabra language that to repeat it has merit in and of itself. It's a model. And God looks on the thoughts and intentions of your heart, not just what is on your lips. You know, the Jews were very good at the rituals and the ceremonies, and, and they constantly were chided by the prophets. It's not just your lips. It's your heart. So here we have a model. And yes, in just the first point of the sermon, I've covered verses 2, 3, and 4. All the petitions, what's left. Well, it's in a context. And what follows, well, I haven't covered them all, have I? Point number three of the first heading. After we pray for the things of God, then we pray for our needs. Let's look at that, and then we'll move on. So two things about God I Name be hallowed, thy kingdom come. And then three things for our needs. We come second. And by the way, notice that it's not just me, me, me. It's our, us, first person plural, because this is what the church prays, not only for ourselves, but for our brethren, for those with us in the local assembly. And the three things are well known to us. Daily bread, the forgiveness of sins, and God's leading away from temptation. Very similar, very well-known things to us. Our needs. Daily bread. Bread representing the basic necessities of life. As opposed to all the things we might want. It doesn't say give us cake every day. It doesn't say give us a cool drink on a beach in the Mediterranean. It's about our basic needs, as one has put it. Not our Base greeds. So he picks bread. Every culture has a bread. They may call it something else. And in some cultures, the bread is so essential, you need it to pick up the other food. It's the fundamental thing. So that's what Jesus uses as a symbol for the whole of our daily needs. And it says daily, and boy, the commentaries sure debate that little term. Does it mean give us bread for tomorrow or give us bread for today? Tomorrow? Today? What's the big deal? Day by day. Give us something daily. It's a great 
simple English phrase to represent what this verb is saying. Our ongoing dependence upon God is every day. Isn't that the wonderful little chorus? Day by day. Day by day. Phil Riken says, Ordinarily, God answers this prayer through earthly means, including our own diligent labors. You work, you get your paycheck, you put it in the bank, and hopefully it's enough to buy some bread at Market 32 or Hannaford or Aldi's or Trader Joe's. You can buy your bread. But Jesus still says pray. Because it's God who gives you life and breath and strength to go to that job and to earn that income and then to spend it for your needs. If you don't think it's God's provision, he can teach it to you the hard way. So we're to pray for our daily necessities, daily bread. The second, forgiveness of sins. I I agree with Phil Riken that we could call this prayer the sinner's prayer. Not just the Lord's prayer, it's the sinner's prayer. It's for Christians who are not perfect. Can we we get a, a, a press release to the world? Christians are not perfect. If you think you're perfect, I need to talk to you after after the service. Christians sin and we need fresh forgiveness. So Jesus makes provision for that in our model prayer. As we think of our bodily needs, we think of our spiritual needs first and foremost to be cleansed from sin. to, To have it removed. To come to God with repentance and ask, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. And the phrase that's added to it so helpfully reminds us of the concept of grace, not merit. When someone sins against you and you forgive them, you're showing them grace. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If you're a Christian, you know about the grace of God. He's shown it to you. And you show it to someone else. The additional language here with forgiveness does not mean I deserve to be forgiven because I've done a good job forgiving other people. No, that's merit. That's twisting the words of Jesus. You can't do that. We forgive as children of God, speaking to our Father, because we've known the Father's grace and forgiveness, we've been given promises, such as 1 John 1.8, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We make a claim on our Father's promises for forgiveness and to show Him that we are our Father's children. We graciously forgive others. We know how important forgiveness by grace is. We're enabled to forgive. I I remember, I was converted at age 18. I remember those days when I would hold a grudge, when I would plot revenge. I was a tease and a prankster. I I could get some revenge. My poor sister, my poor brother, my friends. But when I tasted the grace of God, when I saw how much I'd been forgiven. My heart was not only wise, but it was enlarged and enabled to go the extra mile, to forgive graciously offenses against me done by others. It's a, deep, it's a simple prayer, but it's deep. Physical needs, spiritual needs, And then the final thing we pray for ourselves is about the present and the future. And lead us not into temptation. That's a great prayer because it's looking up. I'm I'm, going to leave my knees or my prayer closet. I'm going to take the next step into the day. Lord, don't let me go astray. Don't let me fall into temptation. Don't let me be giving into temptation. The true child of God does not want to sin. He doesn't want to be tempted. We need to note what the Bible elsewhere teaches us. James chapter 1 makes it explicit. 
God does not tempt us directly. James 1.13 and 14 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, really the big term there is lead us. Don't leave me to my own feelings. They will get me entangled. When the culture says, oh, if it feels good, do it. That's wrong. We should look to the light of God's word for what is good and what's right and healthy for us. So when we pray, lead us, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lead me, not into temptation. Lead me in paths of righteousness. So it's looking up from prayer, this last request, it's so important. And we have every right to look to God and expect this. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that church that had so many problems, not like us. The Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 10.13. And by the way, here's a great memory verse. Boys and girls, if your mind has wandered, look at this verse. If you have your Bible, turn with it. Make sure it's underlined or make a little slip of paper. I tell you, I don't think I would have survived my earliest years as a young Christian without this verse. Seriously. In this broken world where everything assails you, don't you need 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it i memorized it first in the rsv and then the niv so the esv is very strange to me but it's truth and when you're in a difficult spot you can bring that truth and you say lord show me the way of escape The first step towards escape is praying. Lead me not into temptation. Father, help me. Take my hand. Jesus, Lord. Basic needs, spiritual needs, life now and forever. Right praying focuses first on God and then on our needs. This is the model prayer, the exemplary model that Jesus gives us. But there's more here. So let's go on. Verses 5 to 8 go together. And it talks a bit about the manner of praying. Okay, so we pray these things. Uh, uh, you know, how much oomph do we put into it? And, and what, what's the attitude of our heart? What's the manner for engaging in prayer. So immediately Jesus is telling them on this occasion of teaching, he talks about a friend. He gives a story about a friend who's in a pickle. And I have no idea where that that concept comes from. If you know, you can send me an email. Uh, I don't know the phrase to be in a pickle. I don't know, pickles in a barrel? I I don't know, I don't get it. But we're often in a pickle. We're in a tough spot. And it's awkward, and and it might be funny later on, but right now it's not funny. In the ancient world where hospitality was so important, and we've heard about hospitality earlier on, Mary and Martha, all of a sudden somebody's at the door, and in the ancient world and today, when somebody arrives, they have some immediate needs. They need something to eat and drink, and then a warm place to lay down. Uh, And you probably have the place, but you may not have the food ready. In this story, this mini parable, Jesus talks about a friend And he talks about it based on this um, understanding of how essential it is to provide hospitality. And the friend has somebody arrive, and so he goes to a neighbor. Hey, friend, I know it's midnight. Hello, you awake in there? You knock until the light comes on and say, I need some bread. A friend has just arrived. I have nothing to set before him. Can you give me some bread? I'm in bed. The kids are in bed. The door is locked. And he gives four different negative answers, right? He's not inclined to help you. Jesus is telling this to us. If you're in a pickle, 
you go to a friend and ask, right? And if it's a serious situation, you ask pretty loudly and pretty bluntly, even if you've got egg on your face and you look a little crazy. What are you doing at the door at midnight? Apparently, even though this friend is in bed and not inclined to help, Jesus says, what? Near the end. He says, verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So the story of a friend, you're going to get some help. Jesus points to this word. It's, it's a Greek word, only used once here in the Bible, so we can't go to another passage. It's used 250 times in the Greek of the literature of the day. And every time it's a negative. Out of those 250, it's a negative thing. It means uh, uh, shamelessness is what it means. Have you no shame? Shamelessness. Asking with audacity and presumption. Or as one Greek lexicon says, it means lack of sensitivity to what is proper, impertinence, impudence. It describes being without adios, which means respect or modesty, having no modesty. If you need to borrow something at midnight, would you go to your neighbors? No, you'd probably drive to a store where somebody's working maybe 24-7. I don't want to wake the neighbors. That would make them upset because it, wouldn't, it would seem inappropriate. It would be shameful to do that. Well, that's the story Jesus is using. And he says the asking in that earnestness and that shamelessness and audacity is what will give a response. If you're in a pickle, ask of God. You don't deserve any help. You might be ashamed of what you're in the situation. But don't hesitate. Ask God. Because as this story tells us, we should be bold. We should come right out and ask for something that no one knows we need, perhaps. Now, with this short parable, we don't want to press the details too hard. God is not being described as the grumpy neighbor. God is better than that. And that's obvious from the context. God is inclined to give. God is inclined to hear your prayer and answer your prayer. That's what Jesus makes clear. And it's almost as though the point is, if a neighbor would do the right thing, how much more would God? Who is your father? Not just a neighbor. So be bold in asking of the Lord. Be real with your needs. Or as Dale Ralph Davis has said, no shame or hesitancy should hold us back in prayer. We know what it is to hesitate. Oh, this is something that's supposed to happen tomorrow. It's too late to call and find out what I'm supposed to do. It's too late. I'd be ashamed to admit it. We know those kinds of situations, right? Don't be that way with God. Own your need. Come shamelessly. God, I have such tremendous needs. No shame or hesitancy should hold us back in prayer. That's what Jesus is telling us. And he goes on. Past verses 5 to 8, he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to talk about an ongoing pursuit of God in prayer. Verses 9 and 10, as Jesus summarizes what we need to take away here, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Three different verbs, repetition, and in each, con- each time an answer, a welcomed answer. Do we hear Jesus and his emphasis? Continue to pursue God in prayer. Pray for that daily bread. Pray for the kingdom. Pray for yourself with regularity and utter honesty and audacity. 
All these verbs speak of continuous, ongoing action. We could make them all ING's. Asking, seeking, knocking. That's the Christian life. Praying, praying, praying. Here is a call to persistence in prayer. You know, with the the neighbor knocking at midnight, some people think that the word impudence is just persistence. No, that's not the word. It's shamelessness. It's his blunt, naked need. So that's the first point. And if you're thinking, oh, I, I think that's too much. God won't. Jesus follows it up saying, ask, ask, ask. Seek, seek, seek. Knock, knock, knock. With persistence, ask. Terry Johnson says, prayer works as you work at prayer. Ask. You have not because you ask not. We also read in the scriptures. Terry Johnson even says, one of the reasons we lack spiritual depth in our day and in our Christian life is because of our failure to persist in prayer. Not just to pray one and done. God can answer that. You leave it with him, he can answer that. But to pray persistently, ask as the need remains. This is an earnest manner for praying. When you're in a pickle, pray boldly. Pray continually to God the Father. Well, there's one more section to the sermon. And see, we're not going to need to get to noon. We'll be done in just a few minutes. This third section, Jesus has something yet more to say in verses 11 and 12. They've asked for lessons on prayer. Jesus gave them the exemplary model. He gives them a real push saying, go at it. And here he gives some encouraging motives at the end. Very tender, very simple from home life, from a dad. Verses 11 and 12, they say this. What father among you? So very simple imagery. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Uh, okay, that's, that's, almost, uh, that's almost kind of absurd. If a son says, Dad, can I have this fish for lunch? He said, no, no, take the snake. No, no dad's going to do that. Or if you ask for an egg, you give him a coiled up scorpion. I don't know how it would look like an egg, but that it comes to mind. No way, a dad's not going to do that. And you see, in the ancient world, according to one study Bible, fish and eggs were the common foods in Palestine, while serpents and scorpions were regular hazards. A dad, just common sense, a dad is not going to give the negative, the dangerous thing, instead of a normal thing. That should be obvious. And that's how Jesus interprets it in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. That's the baseline. A regular dad is not going to give something bad. God is better than a regular dad. He's going to give something really good. That's where it's going. But before we move on, I just want to pause. Because even as we talk about praying to God as Father... We have to understand in in the brokenness of our world, there are a lot of people who grew up with a bad dad, a harsh environment, perhaps suffered abuse, lack of love or something worse. And it's hard as we approach God as a father. We need to be patient and understanding with those who have those struggles. It's real, it's hurtful, and it but it's not insurmountable. We need to patiently teach God's holy character. He is the ideal of what can be and should be, and he wants to be that for his children. So Jesus starts with that. If a human father can get it right, let me tell you, secondly, trust your heavenly father. Trust your heavenly father more That's where verse 13 leads us. If you then who are evil, meaning you're not God, you're not hallowed, you regular guys, you can get this right. How much more, he argues from the lesser to the greater, it's a logical argument, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, you can trust this God with your asking. 
you trust your parents. You know, they go into the fridge. They're not going to pull out a snake. Here's a viper. I visited my sister and her brother in Tennessee. And they said, oh, we're going to go. They live in the country, out in the woods. Lots of animals, wildlife. We're going to walk the dogs. You want to go? And I said, sure. And he takes his walking stick and he takes. It's a Scottish dirk, but it's 18 inches long. It's a little sword. Because once they were on a walk and a coyote grabbed one of the dogs. And he's got to defend. And so I'm, I'm looking at that as we walk out. And he says, oh, make sure to look down for snakes. You know, on the warm days, they like to come out on the pavement and sun. If a human father can help you navigate, okay, what can your heavenly father do? Jesus implies God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted. God is kinder than your grumpy neighbor. God is greater than mere human fathers. He is not devious. He's not going to laugh. He's not going to turn on you. He's not going to walk out on you and your mom. This heavenly father is different. He's greater. And Jesus wants us to see that. Indeed, don't we know from the scriptures how great this father is? He does not hold back from giving. But as one of the greatest verses of the whole Bible tells us in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him to us. Or as Paul would write in Romans, that wonderful chapter of Christian blessing, later on in Romans 31 and 32, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? This is the heavenly father to whom we pray. This is a motive to pray all the more, to pray bluntly, to pray expectantly, to be encouraged to pray. Will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Our daily bread, our forgiveness, our guidance, But it's interesting how verse 13 ends. Do you see as he's trying to motivate us to prayer saying God gives much better gifts. uh, How much more will the heavenly father give? And it says the Holy Spirit. Wow. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many people were surprised the first time you read that? Whoa. The Holy Spirit. That's spiritual. Yes. But the Holy Spirit stands in like daily bread stands in for all your basic needs the holy spirit stands in as the best of all gifts god can give you that bread he can lead you he can keep your foot from slipping but you know what he's going to do even more than that in fact he's going to do the greatest thing he can ever do if you're already in christ he gives you the holy spirit of god to indwell you to be a comforter, to be a guide, to lead you in understanding the word, to help you in your prayer life. The Holy Spirit intercedes with us and for us. The greatest gift. If you don't think the Holy Spirit is so great a gift or answer to prayer, you don't know the Holy Spirit. You haven't read the Bible. Read John 14 and 15. Get to know the Holy Spirit. Jesus even told his apostles, you guys sit tight. Until you're endued with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. You just wait in that upper room until the Holy Spirit comes. And then, hang on. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is God's greatest gift. What gift could exceed the Holy Spirit? I said I was going to tell you something more about John Newton. Who wrote the hymn we sang earlier. We, We also know he wrote Amazing Grace. Before he was a pastor and before all these hymns were published. uh, He was a sailor. Even worked his way up to be the captain of a ship. And his sailing vessel was trafficking in slaves between Africa and Britain and the Americas, perhaps. Captain Newton, one night on his um, slavery ship, I think the name of it was the Greyhound. I haven't read the biography. I like the biography by Brian Edwards. Very short and very helpful. One night a, a tremendous storm came out so that part of the deck was broken and his captain's cabin flooded he came on deck 
a man was washed overboard. He helps take the wheel himself. And in the midst of that storm and all that transpired that night, he was again in prayer because for a long while he was under conviction of sin. His godly mother and other inputs, he knew that God was to be feared and obeyed and submitted to, but he just hadn't been converted yet. And there in that storm on the deck, knowing his sinfulness and being under conviction, he remembers Luke 11 verse 13. If you pray, God can give you the Holy Spirit. Newton, under conviction of sin, prays for the Holy Spirit, and he is born again. God answers prayer. God gives us what we need. And in John Newton's life, it was life itself. Well, in closing this Teach Us to Prayer sermon, I want to focus just on three things before you go. Three Uh, exhortations or reminders, if you will. Number one, see the necessity for daily prayer and persist in it. See the necessity for prayer and persist in it. That was the example of Jesus. That's what our daily need requires, does it not? We need daily bread. Uh, You can skip a meal, I suppose, skip eating for a day. But if you want to eat, you should pray. And ask God for it. And when he provides it, give thanks for what you're about to receive. We have sins every day. We need to ask for forgiveness every day. We have daily needs. We need to be praying every day. The Bible doesn't say if you've sinned big time, go get cleaned up and then come back. It says, ask as unworthy as you are, that friend at the door at midnight, hey, I'm sorry, I look like such a jerk, I'm such a bad neighbor, I'm waking you up. God wants to hear our prayer because he can provide that need and show his glory and bless his people. See the necessity of prayer and continue in it. I have to say that Dr. Leon Morris, for a scholar, hits it right on the head when he says this. We must not play at prayer, but must show persistence if we do not receive the answers immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context of Luke 11 makes it clear that he is eager to give. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, perhaps we do not want it very much. You know, your prayer life is a barometer of your spiritual health. If you can't remember the last session of prayer, earnest prayer, you need to get to it without delay. The first thing you need to pray is forgive my prayerlessness. We're not kidding around here. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You have him on his terms. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You need to be praying not just for your needs, which we've listed, but for God's glory and for his kingdom. We're saved to serve. We're saved to advance the glory of God. And he will attend to our needs. See the necessity here. And of course, put the Lord first in your praying. I I think most of us pray when, oh, all of a sudden... Uh, I didn't expect that bill, or the car's broken down, or so-and-so sick, or I've got to go have a surgery. Our needs often bring us to pray about our needs, but we often drop the ball on praying what Jesus puts first. In Matthew 6 and here in Luke 11, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The more you think on that, and the more you pray about that, your perspective changes. It's a little bit more important than who gets elected president. Thy kingdom come. Let's spend time on that. The Bible tells us to. We can pray about the other things and we're going to need to do a lot of praying. But thy kingdom come. Putting God first. Help, it helps get us reoriented, recalibrated as we pray those things. Puts our needs in perspective. Finally, one last thought. When we follow this model from prayer, we will gain assurance and grow spiritually. 
You know that, that thing that sometimes we doubt a little bit? Does God really love me? Am I right with God? Well, you know, when you pray and God answers, that builds your assurance. And your Christian life begins to flourish. You become a little more fruitful. That's why we should be praying, to gain assurance. It was John Calvin who commented on this model prayer and how we gain assurance. He said, we know we are requesting nothing absurd, nothing strange or unseemly, in short, nothing unacceptable to him, since we are asking in almost his own words. Give us this day our daily bread. There is nothing wrong with that prayer. You're praying for greedy things? Yeah, good luck with that. But when we pray as Jesus taught us, God first, ourselves second, we grow in our assurance. God will hear us. Pray for one another. God will hear us. Jesus gives us this model prayer. He gives us motives and every encouragement. I can't wait to spend more time in prayer. It's been a good week for me looking at prayer. I texted my kids this morning. Hey, I'm preaching on prayer. I've been praying for all of you. Prayer. God will answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word about prayer today. We thank you for your Spirit's work in this sermon teaching us and enlightening us and convicting us. Father, for the prayerless among us, we confess our sin, our neglect of prayer. Forgive us. And Father, with the encouragements of Jesus, these bold and very big encouragements, may we be bold in our prayer. May we come naked and ashamed as we might be before you, but to ask, thy will be done to ask for forgiveness, to ask for your leading, guiding, and provision. Father, may your children know your loving heart and receive your blessings, even the Holy Spirit, as we pray and as you answer. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.